The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to finish out the text of Genesis 3 today, and of course next week will be Easter. And I think we'll come back at least one more time to Genesis 3, sort of a smorgasbord sermon. You guys are used to that now. We've done those at the end of each chapter, just little issues or things that have come up that I haven't had the time to address like I wanted or maybe haven't addressed at all. Uh, We'll probably do that the week after Easter, and then we're into chapter 4, moving on through. And from that point forward, really, it's going to be interesting, 4 through 11 is going to go relatively quickly. Okay, don't get any uh, expectations of what that looks like, but... Uh, It's going to go quicker than the first three uh, have gone in just the sense that you have three chapters dealing with a very short period of time, and then you have another eight chapters dealing with about 2,000 years, okay? So it's going to move, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in a very uh, short period of the text. Basically what Moses is going to do is how, how do we get from Adam to Abraham? That's the question, okay? So we've got eight chapters to address that, and we'll cover that beginning in about three weeks from here. Uh, We'll jump into that. So you're here in Genesis 3. Let's read this passage again this morning. Verse 1, Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are coming to the end of this study of Genesis 3, and we have been since we started in this chapter, trying to understand what happened to this perfect world that you had made that we read about and studied in chapters 1 and 2. And so far, Lord, we have seen what has occurred. We saw that Adam and Eve rebelled against you, as have we. We saw your response to sin. We saw how you chose to draw out the truth to reveal it. We've seen, Lord, now how you are bringing retribution and redemption Onto them because of their choices. And Lord, today, here at the very end, we get to see the final piece of what their choices have brought about. We get to see the final and ultimate result of their life of sin that they have chosen. And it's no less true for us than for them. Lord, as sinners, we all are in the same boat with these two people. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand our condition before you. But even more than that, Lord, help us to see your heart. Even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the consequences that that have come from it, help us to see your heart in all these things so that we can exalt in Jesus, so that we can rejoice in the salvation that we have in him. This study has taught us a lot about sin, but more than that, Lord, we wanted to learn about Christ and about salvation. And so, Father, will you show us that today? Will your spirit make that clear to each and every person in this room? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like uh, fireworks? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, I've always liked fireworks ever since I was a kid to this day. I I still like them quite a bit. However, as you get older, you begin to realize how predictable fireworks shows are. In fact, the whole thing around a fireworks show is very predictable. It always begins the same way with you at home trying to figure out the exact moment in time when you need to leave your house so that you can get to where you're going to watch the fireworks soon enough to get a parking spot that's good enough for you to escape quickly at the end of the show. You're thinking about the end right from the very beginning, right? So you get the kids ready, you load everything up, uh, you get in the car, you drive there. Next comes the realization that you did not leave soon enough to get there in time to get a parking spot that will allow you to escape quickly at the end of the show. Uh, And so you have to choose now from the best of what's left. And so you finally find a spot that you think will be your best option while your wife is beside you telling you that this is not, in fact, the best option, that that one over there really was the best option. But you know better. You know better, so you choose it anyway. So you park, you get out, you pull all your your gear out of the the car, and next comes the 10, 15-mile hike from where you park to where you're actually going to watch the show. It doesn't, it's not actually that long, but it does feel that way because of all the stuff you're carrying. Am I right? For some families, I bet some of you in here, 
there's a very fine line between watching fireworks shows and going camping. Very fine line between the two, okay? So you, you haul all your stuff there, you get there, you get everything set up, and once everything's set up, uh, that's the, the moment when you realize that you left that one most important item in the car, that one you have to go back and get no matter what. It could be the baby's diapers, it could have been the snacks, it could have been your oldest child, whatever it is. <laughs> You have to go back and get this thing. And so you hike all the way to the car and back. And by the time you get back and sit down, you're finally settled. For us anyway, this is the point when all the smoking families arrive. And they they surround us. I don't know how they know where we sit each year, but they do. And so they form a circle around us. And I'm used to smoke at fireworks shows, but not from the crowd. I want it from the sky. And since there's more of them than us, then the easiest thing to do is just to pack everything up and move to another spot that's hopefully smoke-free, and so you do that. Now you're settled again, and this is when one of the little ones has to go to the bathroom. Even though you asked them before you left, do you have to go? And they swore up and down, no, I don't have to go, I won't have to go again for a week, I'm good. But they have to go now, and unfortunately, the one porta potty they installed for the 30,000 people in your section is 10 to 15 miles past where you parked, and you know there's going to be a line... And you know that somewhere in that crowd, someone had chimichangas earlier that day. (laughs) And it ain't going to be pretty when you get in there. But they have to go, so you you take them. Sure enough, you wait in line, and uh, it gets your turn, and you walk in, and then they don't have to go anymore, because they've seen what's there, and (laughs) they can hold it at this point. So uh, you're making mental notes throughout all of this, right, for next year, what you're going to do. Like, you made a mental note when you got there that next year we're going to leave 30 minutes sooner even though you know that's never going to happen as long as you have children living in your house. Now you make two more mental notes to yourself. Number one, next year, bring an industrial-sized bottle of hand sanitizer as well as no fewer than three cans of Lysol just in case that comes up again. You also make an extra note to yourself to never eat chimichangas ever again. It's not worth it. Uh, So you get back to your place, and now, really from this point on until the show begins, things typically are pretty quiet. You're just sitting there waiting for the time to pass, for the sun to set, for it to get dark, and finally it gets dark, and here comes the fireworks show, and fireworks shows always start with the big flourish right off the bat, you know, boom, 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 gets your attention, and then they start shooting off little single ones, here's one, there's one, here's a pretty one, here's a pretty one, okay, it goes on like that, and then comes what looks like the grand finale, except you're hoping, hoping, hoping that it's not really the grand finale, because if it is the grand finale, you went through a whole lot of trouble for that little tiny show, but thankfully you're right, it's not the grand finale, it's just like that halftime marker for fireworks shows, they always do it every year, they try to trick you, and so the, the show continues in the second half, and it's getting bigger and bigger, it's building and building, and then right near the end, you hit a lull, and there's silence for a moment, and you tell your kids, get ready, and then comes the real grand finale, right? And it's awesome, explosions everywhere, and you're really enjoying it, and it's done, and everybody starts clapping, and then begins the mad dash back to the car as quick as you can get there. You know, mom's like loading up snacks and diapers, and she throws a kid in the bag. She doesn't know. She's grabbing stuff. Dad's grabbing chairs and the cooler and all the other stuff that he's got, the paraphernalia. Begins the mad dash back to the car along with everyone else. If you think the herd going to the kids' area when we dismiss the kids is bad, then just imagine, you know, times 4,000 at a fireworks show. And it's about this point that that first kid says to you again, Dad, now I have to go to the bathroom. And, of course, you say to them in your fatherly wisdom, you should have gone earlier. (laughs) Parents, can I just make a note, an observation? 
There are lots of things our children should have done that don't really matter anymore at this point. You know, it's kind of a moot point what they should have done because you're dealing with a new reality now. So you tell them you should have gone earlier. Just hold it. If we get to the car fast enough, we'll get home in time. You can just go at home. So you're rushing, rushing. Of course, by the time you get to your car, it's too late, right? It's gridlock has descended upon the region that you're in. All the friendly police officers who were there directing traffic on the way in have apparently been called to a hostage situation on the other side of town. And now anarchy and chaos are reigning in the land. There's hand gestures going this way and pithy little sayings going that way. And that's just if you're parked behind Ed or Frank. It's just, it's a mess. It's what the scriptures say, that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes at this point. From the back seat, you have this voice reminding you, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. From the passenger seat, a voice is saying, I told you that wasn't a good place to park. (laughs) And after 45 minutes of this, waiting in line, trying to get out, and after one ruined outfit that isn't worth cleaning, uh, you finally get home and you make your last mental note of the evening, which is, what? Never going to watch fireworks ever, ever again. Again, even though you know you will. Uh, Firework shows are pretty predictable, and, and I bring this up because when I read Genesis 3, there's a real sense in which it reminds me of a firework show, thankfully not in terms of the chimichangas or the, or the gridlock afterwards, okay? but just the show itself, there's, there's a lot of similarities in terms of how it flows here in the story. It begins with that big flourish right up front where we're seeing Adam and Eve in this conversation with the serpent. And by the time you get to verse 6, there's a real sense in which you're wondering, is it done? Is this, is this the end of the story right here once they've eaten the fruit and they've broken what God, uh, the command that God had given them, told them what not to do? But of course, it's not the end. In beginning in verse 7, the show kind of begins to build again. It's building through verses 14 and 15. It's building even more through verses 16 through 19, the verses we looked at last time. And then you hit verse 20 and 21, and it's kind of like you hit a lull. You know, from verses 14 to 19, God had been speaking nonstop. And you hit verse 20, and all of a sudden, silence. But you look at verse 23, and you see it's not done yet, because God's going to speak again. And in fact, what I would argue with you this morning is that verse 23 here represents really the pinnacle of the story. Verses 22, 23, and 24, excuse me, they represent the pinnacle of the story, sort of the grand finale of of what we're going to see here. It's very similar to how the creation story was laid out in terms of uh, from chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3. The story's building, 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 but the pinnacle, the, the, the big conclusion, the thing that's most important doesn't come until the very end. Well, in a very similar way, that's exactly what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. The conclusion, the the ultimate response of God doesn't come until the very, very end here. And so today what we want to do is we want to finish out the text of Genesis 3. We want to look at these last five verses, verses 20 to 24, and I want to show you three distinct statements that are made here in the story that will take us to this grand finale. And will also, in the process, show us the true and greatest problem that sin brought into the world. Okay, We tend to, I think, think that death is the greatest problem that sin brought into the world. What we read about in verse 19. But verse 19 is not the end of the story. It wasn't the pinnacle. It wasn't the, the grand finale. There was more yet to come. And so we need to see what that is. Now, 
Before we jump into this, let me give you a quick word of explanation as to how we're going to approach this this morning, okay? Um, Because the text presents verses 20 to 21 sort of as a lull, I want to do it as well. I'm not saying they're not important, don't misunderstand me, but clearly something changes from 19 to 20, 21, back to 22, okay? God's speaking, speaking, not speaking, speaking again. And so we're going to look at verses 20 and 21, but we're going to do it very quickly. There's two statements. The first two statements we're going to see are there. We're going to hit them, understand them real quick, and move on. We want to spend the bulk of our time on the third statement that we see here in the text, which is in verses uh, 22 to 24. So that's, that's the plan. That's how we're going to approach it. I'm doing that because I think the text warrants it. And so let's jump in here this morning. Let's look at statement number one, which is a statement of faith. Okay, a statement of faith. In verse 20, as I said, God stops speaking. He's been speaking nonstop from verses 14 to 19. It's just him and him alone talking. You hit verse 20 and he's done. And Moses inserts this little statement here that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, at first glance, two things strike me about this verse. Number one, it's very abrupt, both in how it shows up in the story and also in terms of of what it says. In terms of how it shows up, of where it's placed, notice it just shows up right after God's pronouncement of death to Adam. There's no warning, there's no segue, there's no transition, it's just boom, there. And in terms of what it says, I mean, you really can't get much more bare bones than this. Adam gives his wife a new name. He names her Eve. She doesn't have this name until this verse. And so all this time prior when I've been referring to her as Eve, I I hope you understood. I just did that because you know what her name is going to be. But she doesn't actually get this name until now. Before, she has just simply been named woman, Isa, because she had been taken out of man, out of Is. Adam had named her in relation to himself. Well, now, now he's going to give her a new name. Not in relation to himself, but in relation to God's pronouncement. The name Eve here means a life giver, okay? So she's got this new name because she's going to be the mother of all living. It's just a very abrupt comment, and I'll explain more about that in just a second. Number two, not only is it abrupt, but quite frankly to me, it seems contradictory. Because when we were looking in verse 19, just a few moments prior, God had just told them that they're going to die. That was the last words we had read there in verse 19. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so now, you know, they're going to die. Hey, I'm going to name you Eve, life giver. That that makes complete sense, right? No, it it doesn't. It's actually kind of confusing because she's dying. She's going to die. Why Why would you name her this? Well... As I've already stated, I think this represents a statement of faith on Adam's part. Because remember that yes, she's dying. Yes, one day she's going to die in the future. But death isn't the only thing that God has promised to Adam and Eve at this point in his pronouncement. Uh, Back in verse 15, he described that ongoing conflict between the good and evil that will characterize the rest of human history. But in doing so, he makes reference, notice, to the woman's offspring. She's going to have children. And the idea is that they're going to have children, that there's going to be a lineage continuing. In verse 16, you see it again as he's giving his pronouncement against her. She's going to have anguish and difficulty in the whole process of reproduction, but 
she is going to reproduce. There will be children. In other words, life isn't being taken from this world, but it, it is being altered. And so, when I read this statement here about Adam naming his wife Eve because she's going to be the mother of all living, I have to assume or understand that as a basic statement of faith on Adam's part, that now at least he believes that God's words will come to pass. Okay, To whatever extent, life will continue on the earth. Eve's going to be the source of that life. I think it's a statement of faith. Number two is a statement of provision. Because immediately following Adam's naming of Eve, we read these words, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, the meaning of these words is perfectly clear. God is replacing their old garments with new ones. Okay, That's it. Prior to this, all they had were little fig leaf underwear. Okay, That's what they got. Now he's going to make for them some animal skin outfits. Peter would love it. That's, this is all this is talking about. What's not as clear, though, is the significance of these words. Because when some people read this, they assume that what you have described here in verse 21 is symbolic of salvation. And that actually makes a little bit of sense if you think about it. Here, an animal is killed. Blood is spilt. God covers his children. He's the only one acting. Notice that in the verse. He's the one who makes the garment of skins. He even clothes them. It's not like he hands it to them and they put it on. He takes care of the whole process through and through. And so you get the idea. I I can see why people would think that. There is certainly a lot of similarity between these concepts and salvation. but, But here's the critical question. Is that what Moses was intending to symbolize? Is that what the Israelite who was hearing these words read to them for the first time would think when they, when they saw these words? Oh, oh, this is, this is like the temple sacrifices and us being made right with Yahweh right here. Well, the honest answer is, I don't, I don't know that that is. Remember those four little uh, principles I gave you for how you should go about interpreting Genesis a few weeks ago? I gave you four things. Number one was use your brain. The least used part of most people's bodies, use your brain. Number two, understand what you see. Number three, say what you can say with certainty. And then number four, do you remember it? Don't say anything else. Okay, That's, That was our principles for interpreting Genesis. Well, if I apply those principles to this passage here, to this verse, I think that the safest and most certain answer that I can give you is that this is a clear statement of God's provision, generally speaking. That even though they've rebelled against him, against his rule and reign, against his care and provision, he's still providing for them. He still cares about them. He takes away those temporary fig leaf cloths and he gives them clothes and he gives them something of more substance, value, something that, that costs a death. The first death we see listed in the scriptures is here. And so while we may be able to draw applications about salvation from this verse, I don't feel comfortable telling you that that's what it's about. But I can say to you with certainty that even in the midst of their sins, God cares for them. And you see that here, I think, with this statement of provision. Now, that's it for the first two. Both of those statements are made very quickly, very succinctly in the text. Prior to this, God had been speaking. The story had been building, building. But now we've hit this little lull. God has gone silent. But it's only temporary because now we come to the third statement, which I'm going to argue is the grand finale. And this is statement number three, a statement of separation. We'll spend the rest of our time here. 
In verse 22, God speaks again and he says this, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's it. I want you to notice four things just about God's words here because four things stand out to me. First, notice that man has become like God in a sense. And this should stand out to you because this was part of what Satan was tempting them with, right? The possibility of being like God. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Your eyes will be open and you'll know both good and evil. When we studied that, I said that it's really nonsensical for Satan to offer this. Number one, he's Satan. He can't offer God-likeness. It's a lie for him to say, I can give this to you or this is how you do it. Only God can do that. Number two, Adam and Eve were already like God. They were made in his image and likeness. Both of those things were true. And yet we see once again that Satan told them the truth. Partially, right? His words were deceptively true. Apparently, there is a sense in which this knowledge of good and evil that they now possess is similar to God in in some ways. But clearly it's not a good thing, is it? When, when Satan offered it back in verses 1 through 6, it was a positive thing. You want this. You want to be like God in this way. Well, now we see, no, no, this is not a knowledge that they should possess. I just wanted you to see that God acknowledges their newfound state here. Second, notice this phrase, one of us. And this doesn't really necessarily fit with the sermon. However, I know that some of you will ask about it if I don't mention it myself. So I'll go ahead and cover it now. The question here, is this an Old Testament reference to the Trinity? And I wouldn't say that. We we talked about this in Genesis 1. Do you remember? A little bit. Maybe you do. Most of you probably don't. That's fine. But I wouldn't say that this is an Old Testament reference to the Trinity. Again, we're asking the question, what did Moses think of when he's writing this down? What did the Israelites understand when they heard these words read to them? And I'm pretty sure that they would not have understood that phrase as a reference to our doctrine of the Trinity. If I had to guess, they might think it was referring to God and the heavenly host or court that's around him. Or maybe they would see it as simply a a statement of majesty, like a king who might say, we have decided to do this when it's really just him, okay? but he speaks in the plural. Maybe they would have understood it that way. Either way, I don't think they see anything close to our doctrine of the Trinity in this. However, from a New Testament perspective, I would say that these words are consistent with our understanding They simply don't prove it. In other words, it's a statement of plurality, but is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Is it 50? Is it 100? I don't know. It's a statement of plurality. It's not necessarily a statement of Trinity. So it doesn't prove our doctrine of the Trinity, but it is certainly consistent with it. Third, notice the possibility of eternal life that would come from eating the fruit of this this tree of life here in the garden. And this is not us speculating. This is, this is the very danger that God is focused on here in this verse. If they eat of this tree, they will live forever. And that might sound nice to us at, at first glance, but you can tell from the text, God does not see this as a positive thing. He doesn't want them to live forever in this state. He doesn't want them to have an eternal life of sin and pain and conflict. Because that's what they'll have if they eat of this tree. And so in that sense now, 
God's pronouncement of death, back in verse 19, is actually seen in a slightly different light. Now, death is seen as a release from this world of sin, this new world of sin that Adam and Eve have made for themselves. Death itself becomes a a blessing almost in a way. It's a strange way of thinking, but that's kind of what you understand here. God doesn't want them to have eternal life in this manner. And then finally, notice the dash. Okay, The dash isn't in the original, by the way. That's just a, something that our translators are doing to help you understand that this verse, this sentence, it's not finished. It's, it's incomplete. And I've tried to reflect that every time I've read this to you since the very beginning when we started in chapter 3. But it's almost as if God doesn't finish his thought. As if his voice simply trails off and leaves us as the reader to imagine the outcome of what would happen should they eat of this tree and live forever in this state. Clearly, the implication is that this is a bad thing and so God has to act. Verse 23 Therefore, because of this danger, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And I want you to look at me right here. Because we're so used to this story, even from just me reading it so many times over the last few weeks, we're so used to this story that we read verse 23 and we get really no significance out of what's being said there. It's just like, okay, it's the next step. Let's move on to to verse 24 and get on in chapter 4. No, 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 no. I want to argue that these words here in verse 23 represent the pinnacle of God's response to sin. Because of sin, God separates man from himself. He sends him out. He sends him away from the garden. And you have to remember now what we learned in chapter 2. That the Garden of Eden is more than just a beautiful place. It's more than just a a happy little green area where they frolicked all day. Okay, You picture frolicking when you think of the Garden of Eden because we're so shallow in our thoughts about it. But it's not just that. This is the place where God had chosen to dwell with man on earth. You cannot forget that now. This is the place on earth where God and man could fellowship, where man could serve and know God directly. I called it, when we studied that, if you remember in chapter 2, I called it a sacred place. I talked about the, the overtones of the temple and the tabernacle and the way it's described that are sprinkled all throughout the story. To be sent out from the garden is to be removed from the presence of the Lord. This is the breaking of a relationship. This is the introduction of separation between God and man. Listed out in just a few words. And I'm pretty sure that the Israelites who were reading this, or hearing this read to them, excuse me, for the first time, would have probably felt the incredible significance of these words. Because to them, living under the law, the, the worst possible thing that could happen to them under the law was not death. The worst possible thing that could happen to them under the law was that they would be cut off from the people. Cut off from the congregation. Sent out from the camp. 
And you say, well, is that because they would miss their friends and family? Well, I'm sure they would have, and that would have been horrible. But that's not it. Because remember that Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is the people to whom He has come, to whom He has chosen to dwell with there in the tabernacle and in the temple. To be an Israelite is to be a person who lives in the continual presence of the Lord. And to be cut off from the people, sent away from the congregation, away from the camp. This is the worst possible thing that you could imagine. This is being deprived or, or, yeah, from, from your relationship with God himself. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve are experiencing now in verse 23. In fact, verse 24 tries to make it even more clear how significant this is. God drives them out. They're not merely just you know, walking out willingly. No, God is here forcibly evicting them. He's driving them away from his presence. And to make sure they never return, God does two things. He puts the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. The word cherubim here is plural, so I assume there's more than one of them. It's like a little little platoon of them or troop here that's doing this. And in case you're interested, I'd love to do this study with you sometime. There are at least three different classes of heavenly beings listed in the scriptures, maybe four depending on how you understand the living creatures of Revelation, but at least three. The, the, the first, the bottom level, so to speak, your standard issue heavenly being is the angels, okay? They're just the, they're kind of like the mass... Regular foot soldiers, all right, you see them a lot doing this and that throughout the scriptures. Above them seems to be the group called the seraphs, okay? And then above the seraphs are the cherubs. And you say, are they all angels? I don't know, but this is the three groups you clearly see listed. And every time you see a cherub mentioned in the scriptures, he's he, it, whatever, is always connected with the immediate presence of the Lord. Always. So that when God is giving uh, Moses instructions for how to build the ark, what does he tell him to put on top of the ark? It's a mercy seat where God's presence will be manifest, covered by two cherubs. When Solomon is building the temple there in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, the, that special room where God's presence will be manifest, he builds two giant cherubs, golden cherubs, that will cover that area. Every time in Ezekiel, throughout the Old Testament, every time you see cherubs mentioned, they are always, always directly connected to the immediate presence of the Lord. And so here we have, uh, in this story, this garden place where God had chosen to dwell with man on earth, where his presence was, and when he kicks man out and wants to protect the way back, what does he put there? Well, he puts cherubs. If that's not enough... Then there's also this little thing about a flaming sword that guards the way to the tree of life. I don't know what that is, but it, it sounds pretty, pretty deadly. Now, when I was in high school, I, I played chess a lot, okay? And, I, and I, I can't play anymore. I'm no good today. I think that, for me at least, is one of those things like you'd have to keep up on to stay good. But at the time, I was okay. I could beat anyone in my school, which granted our school wasn't very large. And I even got to, to do a competition one time with a bunch of area schools, and I got third place out of the group. So I, I was okay at chess at that time in my life. Normally when I played, I would just play to win, right? Just to get it over with as quickly as possible, checkmate on my opponent, and be done with it. But every now and then, for whatever reason, whether it was my opponent or something, someone who was watching or whatever, every now and then, I wouldn't just simply play to win. I would play to decimate and humiliate my opponent. 
So even though maybe I could have checkmated them 20, 30 minutes ago, I didn't. I kept picking off every piece until finally all they had left was the king. And then I'd kill them at that point just to, just to prove a point. That was all. I just wanted to show them that I was the best. You know, I got my, I got my stuff. I'm cool. I told you that, you know. It's my street cred back then. Um, I, it was a little overboard, granted. But I was wanting to make sure that they understood something in the game. Well, when, when I read these verses here, there is a real sense in which verse 24 seems like God is going a little bit overboard here. I mean, it's not as if God needs anyone's help in protecting the way back to the tree of life. As if he's going to be busy someday, you know, he's going to be working on something, and he turns around, Adam and Eve are there, he's like, how'd you guys get in here? What? Sneaky. He's not going to do that. He doesn't need anyone's help to, to guard the way back to this tree of life. Certainly not the cherubs, and yet, there they are. And I don't know what cherubs are exactly, but every description I read of them in the, in the Old Testament particularly makes them sound pretty mean, deadly-looking creatures. I'm pretty sure that they would have been sufficient to, to taking care of making sure that Adam and Eve never got back in, and yet, here's this flaming sword that turns every way. It's there. Why? It's not as if all these things are needed. The whole description is so over-the-top that I have to assume that there's more significance to God's actions here than simply keeping them away from a tree. In fact, I think we have to assume that God wants us to understand that the separation that now exists between him and Adam and Eve, between God and man, is complete and insurmountable by human standards. Adam and Eve don't have a chance. Not not a chance. The way is closed. Separation is now the new norm. Now, now that we've seen all these things, now we have a complete picture of what life will be like here in this new world of sin. There's going to be ongoing conflict between the forces of good and evil with each side striking blows at the other. There's going to be anguish and difficulty, pain for both men and women in their respective realms of productivity. Reproduction will now be filled with difficulty. Providing food will now be filled with difficulty. There's going to be conflict between the sexes as women seek to usurp or conquer their husbands. In response, there's going to be the domination of women by men. That's not loving male leadership. This is a bad thing. There's going to be death in the world now. Everyone will die. Everyone will return to the dust from which they were made. Abundant life will no longer be possible. And now you see finally that there will be separation between God and man. Man will be separated, cut off from his presence, unable to return on his own. Welcome to the new world. This is, this is what you see here in chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but when I list thing, these things out in this way and try to understand them in their fullness and their completeness, seeing that whole picture together, it makes the truths of the gospel even more significant in my heart. Because all along as we've been studying through these things, all three chapters, but really here in chapter 3 I've been thinking about this a lot, we've been asking the question of how do you read this story through the lens of Jesus? Because Jesus himself is the one that says that Moses wrote about him. That all of these things somehow are, are teaching us about God's plan. And so we've been trying to step back and see how is God working even in these details 
to show us his plan for the world in Christ. And now that we've seen this last piece, I, I think the picture comes together completely. Because the biggest problem with sin isn't the things that we typically think of first. The biggest problem with sin isn't the pain that our lives are filled with because of it. The biggest problem with sin isn't the the conflict and the strife that occurs between husbands and wives and families and friends and neighbors and, and nations. And the biggest problem with sin isn't even death. Make sure you hear that. The biggest problem with sin is that it separates man from God. That is the biggest problem with sin. And in my understanding, it is this separation that is our spiritual death. This is our spiritual death because apart from God, we have no no spiritual life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds apart from Him. I think even Jesus acknowledged this. In John 17, as He's praying right before the cross, He's praying to the Father, and one of the things He says is that this is eternal life. You want to know what it is? This is eternal life, that they might know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You sent. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is defined by knowing God. That's not merely like, I know who He is. That, that's having a relationship with Him. Being one with Him. In other words, not being separated from Him. If I take Jesus' words and kind of turn them on their head and read them a different way, you can really see that, that this is eternal death, that they don't know you. That they don't know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The biggest problem we see here from sin is that it has separated us from God. And in order for man to be reconciled to God, then, well, sin had to be dealt with. And so, what did God do? Right? We know this part. We say it all the time because it's easy to say, and we're Christians, and this is just what we do. God sent His Son. He sent His Son in the form of a man so that He could pay for the sins of man. And on the cross... A divine transaction is taking place. One that's not immediately visible when you read the gospel accounts. Because when you read the gospels, you see him hanging there naked on a tree and he's bleeding and he's dying. And you know why he's dying. He's dying for us. You know that he's dying for our sin. But you can't see the other things that are happening. Things that are described as a mystery. It's things that are incredibly amazing, something that we could barely fathom because at that moment, God is taking all of our sins and He's laying them on Jesus. Jesus is now bearing the sins of us all. And Jesus, now the righteous one, the sinless one, becomes sin for us. And then, then God responds to Him in two ways. Number one, Because all that sin is on him, God the Father now pours out his wrath on his Son. Every ounce of punishment that sin rightly deserved is poured out in full measure on Christ. That's one thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that God pours out the full measure of our separation from him as well. 
so that Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, cries out those haunting words that you know very well, but don't think of probably like you should. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hangs there alone. For the very first time in eternity, the Son hangs there alone, separated from the Father because of our sin. Why have you left me? Why are you separating yourself from me? Well, you're educated now. You tell me. Why why did the Father separate himself from his Son? Why exactly did he abandon Jesus on the cross? It was because of Genesis 3. It's because of the sin that has separated man from God ever since verse 23. This is the reason, because of sin, Jesus has to hang there alone, but but here's here's where we really get to begin to see the redemption. But because He died for us, because our sins are laid on Him, because God poured out all His wrath on Christ, because God took our separation and placed it on Jesus, we can now be, here's your word, reconciled to God. You know what the word reconciliation means, right? It's bringing two parties back together. They were separated before, now they're, they're brought back together. The husband and wife were separated, we've reconciled them. The family was broken apart, we've put them back together. Okay, that's reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God in Christ. And the New Testament is literally filled, filled to overflowing with the blessings of reconciliation. For example... Because we've been reconciled through Jesus' death, we can now do something that no one prior to the cross could ever have even fathomed. We can come boldly before the throne to our Father. Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the result? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No one prior to the cross could have ever imagined such a blessing. Or another one, because we've been reconciled through Jesus' death, God now looks at us differently. So Colossians 1 We, us, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? To present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were, we go, it's not like we just get fixed a little bit, like we just need to tweak a few things. We are radically changed through this reconciliation. A third one, because we've been reconciled through Jesus' death, we now see that God is making a new people for himself. Ephesians 2, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, talking about Jews and Gentiles, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's a new people of God through this reconciliation that Jesus works on the cross. And then finally, because we've been reconciled through Jesus' death, we now have a responsibility to tell others about this reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's your message. That's that's telling the gospel. That's what witnessing is all about. Hey, be reconciled to God. You don't have to live your life separated from him anymore. You can be reconciled. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I, I could keep going, but I hope you're seeing my point. Sin has separated us from God. That's the biggest problem that sin introduces into the world. That was our spiritual death. And so God sent his son to take that separation for us so that all who place their faith in Christ would be separated no more. Now look, we're, we're going to celebrate Easter next week, right? And, and we're all going to get together and we're going to talk about the death and crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to be reading certain passages here and there from the Gospels about this and that that occurred that week. And all that stuff is good and I'm excited for it. But, but for our purposes this morning, one particular aspect of the, of the Easter story stands out to me that I want to give to you today. We don't want to wait till next week. I want to give it to you today in relation to all this. In Matthew 27, verses 45 to 51, we read this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you realize that that's kind of a strange comment to insert in the middle of, his, of the death narrative here, right? Because the whole other time we're focused merely on the cross. We're there, we're standing at, at Golgotha, we're looking at Jesus on the cross, and, and in the story all of a sudden he's like, pause here, look over at the temple. Okay, it's, it's just like that. You're here, now go there. Why? Why did Matthew and several other of the gospel writers feel the need to immediately divert our attention from this to that? To this act of the curtain splitting in two from top to bottom. He's talking about the curtain that covers the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence is manifest. Why? Well, you know why, right? It's because in a very visible way, God is showing us that the separation is gone. It's gone. The the division that used to exist between man and God symbolized by this thick curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of everyone else. It's destroyed by God Himself 
top to bottom. As a clear, clear picture of what God is now doing here in this world. Now that Jesus has died, there's finally a way to be separated from God no more. Look, if you're here today, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand where you're at. You're separated from God. This, that's your spiritual death. But I'm here today as an ambassador of reconciliation saying to you, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. You don't have to be separated from Him anymore. God is calling you today. The invitation is clear. Be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross for you. If you're here and you're a believer, then brothers and sisters, listen to me. One of the primary lies of Satan, one of the things he works better than almost anything else, is the feeling in our heart that God is a million miles away. Am I right? To, to make us feel alone in this world. As if God has abandoned us because of who we are. Because let's face it, we're no prize. All right, That's, we're, we're nothing to be excited about. We're no prize whatsoever. But I'm telling you, that is a lie. And I hope that these words now from Romans 8, the words you're familiar with, but I hope you'll hear them in a different light and see the words separate in a different way than you ever have before. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever, ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear it? You see what he's saying? You are reconciled. That is it. The story's done. Father, we rejoice in the reconciliation that we have in Christ. We rejoice in the fact that it is certain, that it is done, that when Jesus cries out on the cross that it is finished, that it really is. That there is nothing more now for us to do. There is nothing more that... For us to be, we are in Jesus and He is our all, or we have nothing. Father, you had no reason to ever accept us back in. Your punishment, your retribution to Adam and Eve was right. They deserved to be removed from your presence, cut off from you, cut off from your fellowship, as do every single one of us. We are unworthy to stand before you, to speak to you, to ever expect in even the slightest way to have a relationship with you. And yet, here we are. Here we are gathered together on the Lord's Day morning. Here we are looking ahead to Easter Sunday. Here we are praying to you in our hearts and minds. Here we are reading all these things clearly, 
you care for us still. Clearly, your grace and mercy are far, far superior to our sin. Clearly, you are capable of overcoming the hardest heart and the most rebellious rebel because you have a whole room of them here before you now. Lord, there are some who are still refusing to be made right. Some who still continue to exist in their separation. Some are here, some are elsewhere, people we know, love, work with. We live in a world that is surrounded, we're surrounded by people in this world, Lord, who are separated from you. Father, will you call these people to yourself? Will you draw them by the glorious truth of the gospel? We know that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe it can change anyone. Will you help us, Lord, to be faithful ambassadors of reconciliation for you? To be appealing to those around us to be reconciled to God. Lord, will you help us as your children remember that no matter what lies Satan brings into our hearts and minds, nothing can now separate us from you. We are sure, certain, secured in the love of Jesus. All of this, Lord, all that we've seen in chapter 3, all of it brings us back to an appreciation of what the gospel is all about. The remaking of what has been destroyed by sin. We were separated from you, but now through our faith in Christ, we can have a relationship with you once again. And we come now boldly with confidence before you to find mercy and grace in all our times of need. And so Jesus, we praise you. That's the only right ending to this service is to praise you, to thank you for all you've done for us, to thank you for your death, to thank you for your resurrection, to thank you for your mercy, grace, and love. We praise you because you are worthy of it and you are all we have. So Father, I pray that you will help every person in this room to see that as being the primary truth that we take away from the study of Genesis 3. That apart from you, we have nothing. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you will use it now in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.